Sleepy Hollow is a place like no other. A place where the forces of good and evil collide for the fate of the world. Prophecies foretold witnesses destined to protect us all. But will they prevail? Armed with keen insights and the ability to see into dark realms. Well, maybe. Barb and Steve help decipher The Witness Prophecies, a fan podcast dedicated to Sleepy Hollow on Fox. Welcome back, Sleepyheads. This is episode 42 of Witness Prophecies. I'm Steve, and power can be lost. Go missing for centuries, then turn up in the unlikeliest of places. But in the end, power can never remain hidden. And I'm Barb. And can I get an amen? Amen. Thanks for that. Today, we're going to be discussing the fifth Sleepy Hollow episode of season four entitled Blood from a Stone, which was written by Theo Travers and directed by Mark Roskin. And I got to say, this was kind of interesting. It was all about Malcolm. Yeah, a lot of it was about Malcolm, but I think we got some other uh, interesting tidbits with Team Witness to discuss. You're right, we did. How about a recap, Barb? I can do that for you, Steve. Joe finds another talisman being used by a charlatan preacher and takes it, but before he can bring it back to Malcolm Dreyfus, a shadowy demonic figure attacks him and takes the rock. It is Dreyfus's former partner, Ansel, whom Dreyfus betrayed years earlier. Meanwhile, Ichabod Crane and Diana Thomas learn from Jenny Mills, Jake Wells, and Alex Norwood that Dreyfus has connections to all the supernatural events they have seen in Washington, D.C. thus far. Crane and Diana confront Dreyfus, but while they are there, Ansel attacks the facility, locking it down. Dreyfus confesses that he is gathering the pieces of the Philosopher's Stone so that he can cheat death through eternal life and void his contract with the devil. He doesn't want to lose his soul. Jenny, Jake, and Alex learn how to thwart Ansel by using an incantation, preventing him from using his sigils, which are demonic symbols that cast different killing spells. Jenny arrives in time to stop Ansel, and Diana catches his tube of Greek fire before it can explode on the ground but Dreyfus escapes. Diana tells Molly that she and Mr. Crane have a special mission. They are witnesses, charged with making the world a better place, and they will do great things. Finally, Jenny, Jake, and Alex determine that Job stole the map of ley lines for Dreyfus from the Smithsonian, and Jenny compares the lines to the scan of the Blavatsky map she owns. They realize that the ley lines mark the site of each piece of the Philosopher's Stone, And the remaining piece can be found in Sleepy Hollow. Of course it can. (laughs) Where else is it going to be? Come on, guys. (laughs) (laughs) We knew that. (laughs) Uh, So this is, I think this is going to be some interesting to discuss. So, but before that, I bet we've got some news this week, don't we, Steve? Yes, we do. Episode three, Heads of State, the live plus seven days Ratings are in, and we tied for fourth in adults' 18 to 49 percentage gain, going from a 0.5 to a 1.0 for an increase of 100%, and was sixth in viewers' percentage gain, going from 1.914 to 3.415 million viewers for an increase of 78%. And that is outstanding news. Yes, it is. And Mr. Iscove. Tweets that out every week as soon as it comes in and thanks all the sleepyheads for their (laughs) viewing. Episode four, 
People versus Ichabod Crane, the final ratings is 0.6 and a two share and 18 to 49 with 2.16 million viewers. And this episode, episode five, Blood from a Stone, the preliminary ratings, a 0.5 and a two share and 18 to 49 with 1.85 million viewers. Yeah, that was so, down a little bit, but I'm sure we're going to see that go up. Well, I think so too. And from the sounds of it, uh, Twitter was very active during the night, so that will definitely also help. We tweeted like mad. I guess so. In the forgotten time zone. So thank you to all those, our wonderful sleepyheads who tweeted, 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 tweeted in Mountain Standard Time, the time zone that doesn't exist and doesn't get any publicity. Yes. And we also have some news for our UK listeners from tvwise.com.uk. Sleepy Hollow is being relocated here in the UK. The drama series is jumping from Universal Channel to sister channel Sci-Fi UK, TV Wise has learned. The show's fourth season will premiere on Sci-Fi UK on Wednesday, February 22nd at 9 p.m. Universal's gamble on the show paid off with Sleepy Hollow consistently ranking as Universal's highest rated import. As such, the decision to move the series is not believed to be based on any ratings performance, but rather that it is a better fit for Sci-Fi UK giving the mix of programming on the genre channel. And we know that we've got yes. a boatload of folks in jolly old England and other parts of UK that are listening to this podcast. So a big shout out to them. So they have, they've got, a, what, three more weeks to wait. Yes, three more weeks to wait before wow. they get episode one. And let's see. So that's six hours different. So that'll be around 3 p.m. Central. They'll be watching. So um, on Wednesday, that's can't tweet during that time with them. <laughs> Unless it's on an app and it tells me what time it is over there. I don't have a clue. I don't even know what time it is in, in my own time zone. Okay. So, but anyway, it's going to be great to have them uh, jumping in and, and sending in whatever commentary that they have as well. And we'll certainly include it. Yes, we will. So speaking of ratings, Steve, what kind of rating did you give the episode last night? All right. I gave it an 8.5 glowing clubs. Ooh, and I gave it 7.5 burnt quesadillas because whiny Malcolm annoyed me somewhat. But we'll, <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Yes. Meanwhile, Linda gave it eight soccer balls, and she said that it felt like a filler. Annette mm. said, good episode. I give it eight Greek fires. Julie gave it eight adorable puppy dog Jakes. <laughs> it's so cute. And Justina gave it 8 out of 10 soccer pep talks, and she put in the cute little soccer ball emoji in there, which was just adorable. She always uses those, those cute emojis. Yep, so it looks like that rounds out to a solid 8. Uh, looks like it. Well, let's jump into it, because I think we're going to have a lot of fun talking about this, Steve. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, we first see Ichabod explaining the origins of soccer to uh, Molly's soccer team as a pep talk, I guess. Uh, <laughs> And they weren't grossed out by it. No, they weren't. <laughs> Kicking around a prince's decapitated head. Oh, my gosh. And the questions they ask. <laughs> they emptied the brains before he played it. Did his eyes pop out? What happened to the head? Oh, my gosh. I would be like, oh, gross. And, and I got to say, I, I did go out to uh, Google and look this up. And I thought, no, seriously not. That is one of the legends out there, not necessarily of how yes. that started, but some of its earliest origins in England. 
that this legend is out there. And I thought, oh, that's so gross and so barbaric. And I thought, yeah, I could see that happening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, when I was over in England and visiting Hadrian's Wall, I heard about that legend as well. <laughs> oh, that's so gross. <laughs> yeah. Hadrian's Wall is awesome. It extends all the way across the continent of England from coast to coast. Yeah, I've seen it separating too. Um, England from Scotland almost, but yeah, awesome. I can see Crane telling them that as part of a history lesson. Yes. Yes, exactly, because he's very factual about that. He wants to get all that right. Now, of course, he does have a little uh, conversation with Diana about being a witness and how he and Abby chose to battle the forces of darkness, but Molly needs to know who she is first and that she may choose another path. And it was interesting that Diana made the comment that that Molly's always been very athletic. And is that something that the witness would have? (laughs) No, not necessarily. No, but it was also clear, too, by the level of comfort that she had in having this impromptu discussion with Crane, that they'd already had several conversations along this line. Right. Yeah. And, of course, Crane brings up, never having the chance to be a father to his son and how his last episode brought that back the forefront of his mind and how much he regrets it. Yeah, that was sad. But I think that it was also meant to reassure Diana, as he did several times throughout the episode, that she's a good mom. Yes, absolutely. And that she's getting to be a mom where he didn't have the chance to be a father. That's a good point. Now, of course, once... Crane gets the information from the rest of the members of Team Witness that Dreyfus has been involved in all the uh, episodes so far. Crane and Diana go to question Dreyfus about Job, who has been identified as being at the Smithsonian the night the um, security guard went poof. And, of course, they get there and they happen to uh, have to wait for him because he's giving a presentation to uh, some future entrepreneurs. And when they walk in, they're seeing a video of the founding of his company and a clip of his partner. And um, yeah, it did seem like a um, maybe a Steve Jobs or (laughs) an IBM moment. Yeah, it was. It really felt like, oh, my goodness, they're founding this or or that it was like Microsoft, right? Because the two of them, what did it found it in a garage? kind of felt like, oh, look right. at this, you know, we're, we're techies and we're figuring this all out. But what I really liked was how Crane just like, oh, looked utterly exasperated and just rolled his eyes. Yes. <laughs> like, give me a break. Yeah, because really, you know, he comes out there and after this video ends and basically says, yeah, you never know, you know, I keep learning from my partner Ansel all the time and you never know when your ride's going to get cut short. So what are you going to do with your ride? and walks off the stage and it's okay. I got to say his hair didn't look much better in his past than it does in his present. No, no. No. (laughs) Yeah, that was um, not a good hairstyle, that's for sure. Now, of course, they confront him about Job and, of course, Dreyfus kind of deflects it saying, you know, he's kind of his own, does his own thing and I don't question him or anything. And Crane comes back with, well, it must be nice having your own uh, personal demon handy. And that was kind of unusual for Crane because he's normally not that uh, blunt, I don't think. No, he's not. And I thought, 
that's interesting. And I wonder if he is doing it because he feels more confident in the world that he's in now, or whether he's doing it because he knows there's Molly that has to be taken care of as well, or or maybe because he just has gotten to the point where he's kind of sick and tired of the bad guys. I don't know, but I that was interesting, I thought. Yeah. Well, I kind of have a feeling that it's more of, yeah, I'm going to call you out because I'm going to start getting ahead of this instead of always being in the catch-up mode, which him and Abby were always trying to play catch-up. And I think he's kind of got, because he did lose Abby, he said, no, I'm not going to be on the defense. Let's get on the offense for once. Yeah, and I kind of liked that. Yeah. It was different. It was unusual. And it was, it'll be interesting to see if we see the same behavior from Crane in some of the future episodes. But it was also interesting, too, to see then how Dreyfus tried to take him down a notch by calling him by his first name. Yeah. And Crane was like, he wasn't going to allow that to deflect because then he still went back after him again. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He was definitely very aggressive with Dreyfus and not intimidated whatsoever by him. So he was definitely spent the most of the episode on the offensive. Now, once Ansel gets the place locked down and they have their first encounter with him and get away, they get into the interior of the um, building and Crane's nose knows it all as he smells Greek fire, which was put in the uh, lighting tubes. And they realize that Ansel's intention is to bring down the entire building. So Ansel wasn't just wanting to get rid of Dreyfus. He was wanting to take down all of it. Well, I think that he kind of intimated that he was going to destroy the whole kit and caboodle because Dreyfus had pretty much stolen everything. I'm going to destroy the man and what he basically stole from me. But Crane put it together very quickly. Yes. And then once they do get down to the basement where all the uh, goodies are that uh, Dreyfus has been collecting, Crane at first wants to just hand over everything to Ansel. And of course, Dreyfus doesn't want anything to do with it. And they finally get him to confess what he's actually doing. And we find out that he is trying to cheat his way out of his deal with the devil by getting eternal life, therefore never dying and never having to give up his soul. But I think what was interesting, too, is that how Crane, again, continued to hold him accountable and basically called him out as a coward. Yes. But he was. I mean, Dreyfus turned into a piece of sniveling whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Insert your favorite noun here. (laughs) Of course, Crane does come through at the end. Once the sigils are broken, he grabs the knife and puts it in Ansel's chest, and that's it for Ansel. Bye-bye, Ansel. Bye-bye. But I really do think with Ichabod, he was going to hold Dreyfus fully accountable and call him out for the type of man he really was, that he was the type of man who was going to run while the rest of his people in his own building were in danger. And the Dreyfus didn't care about anyone but himself. And he was a coward, a complete coward. So it gave us, I think, a completely different view of him, which we can talk about some more later yes and we will all right how about our number two miss jenny well jenny didn't have quite as much of a role this time but she was certainly right in the middle of all the problem solving what i thought was very interesting was how jenny here she's sort of our 
our senior expert, if you will. And here she's right. giving advice to Alex about how to determine what Job took from the Smithsonian by looking at a lot of the uh, the transport records. And Alex was clearly impressed by Jenny's level of experience. And I think just her her street smarts. Right. Yeah, we definitely got to see a lot of bonding going on between Jenny and Alex in this episode. Yeah, and that's something that we had talked about earlier uh, in the season, is how it would make a lot of sense for the two of them to bond over this. They both like weaponry. They're both resourceful. But I think Jenny can really act as a coach to Alex and help bring her along and help her enhance her skill sets, shall we say. Yes. (laughs) But then meanwhile, Jake, bless his adorable little puppy dog heart, keeps staring at Jenny um, with exactly that kind of face. And Jenny says, well, what is it with Jake? And then when she's told, she just sort of shakes her head. And then (laughs) when when she's told about the little con that uh, Alex has going to try and put in some good words about Jake with Jenny, She's like, oh, come on, give him a smile. And I was ap- actually surprised that Jenny just kind of kind of looked around and then just kind of gave him that little smile. And he, ah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't believe oh, that she actually went ahead and indulged him with that. <laughs> yeah. But she clearly looks like someone like, really, do I have to? And it, it reminds me of like what, Indiana Jones when he's, you know, in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, when he's got that guy with the samurai sword, you know, just throwing, throwing it up in front of him. He just like looks exasperated and takes out his right. gun and shoots <laughs> the guy. And that's how I feel like about Jenny. Not that she'd ever shoot Jake, certainly, but it's just like, oh, really? Do I have to give him a yeah. smile? Fine. I'll give him a smile. It's over. <laughs> Let's get back to work. Exactly. Now, of course, Jenny is the one as they figured out this incantation and what they needed to do. Then she went to the building and she was going to get in through the ducks after Jake and Alex kind of figured out how to rig the system so that she could get in. And they didn't show us anything about that. I saw one or two little complaints about that, I think, in a couple of write-offs. But it's like, okay, get over it. If she, if she could clearly get in through the valves and get in, and she knew where, where to do it. So she got in, got down to the chamber. She chants the spell, the incantation, to stop Ansel. And then that allows our team to save themselves, thankfully. Yes, she saves the day once again. She did indeed, but without kicking anyone this time or being being a a BA, she did it through her spells. And we've heard her do incantations so many times over the episodes. It was, I think, a nice reminder that that she's a BA in a number of different ways. Yes, Um, that she, She can do it physically, but she can also do it by her smarts. And we saw that then again here at the end when working with Jake and Alex, they figured out what had been stolen, that it's the map of the ley lines, except it's just the lines themselves. And so then she pulls out her Blavatsky map, which we saw last season, another nice tie-in. And that's when they're like, holy cow, here's where all of these artifacts, these talismans have been procured from each of these different spots. And the last one is at Sleepy Hollow. And again, a lot of nice tie-ins, terminology that we've heard before, the Blavatsky map, which we've seen before. And they're using all of the resources at their disposal and things that our team has known over the years. And that's exactly what you would do. I mean, it's like you're in a job and you learn your job. You're going to use all the tools at your disposal. And that's what Jenny is doing. Yes. So very good at it. She is awesome. What about Diana and Molly, Steve? Well... 
Diana has some self-doubts going on with how she's going to be able to tell Molly she's a witness. And, of course, she has some questions that she asked Crane about. It's really, um, I mean, I can kind of see her point because she's a single mom and she works ungodly hours. So she doesn't feel completely like she is connected to Molly because she's not there with her like a normal mom would be. Well, more to the point, how do you tell your 11-year-old kid that they're a witness and they're going to be fighting demons and monsters for the rest of their life? I mean, really, your own kid would probably think you were nuts at that point. Yes, absolutely. But I think that was, it definitely helped her with her questioning of Crane and telling her that, yes, Abby and I decided to do this this way, but that's not the only way. Molly could have her own path to follow. And we see that come out at the very end of the episode when she does finally sit Molly down and talk to her about being a witness. It was almost like a birds of the bees conversation. (laughs) I really got that impression. Let's sit down and have some dinner. Oh, I really have to talk to you about this. And I thought, oh, no, (laughs) it's the talk. You're a witness. Right. But for as uncomfortable as she sounded like she was sitting down and doing it when she was talking with Crane, when she actually did do it, it came out very well, I thought at least. It wasn't anything that would scare her. It was basically telling her that she was special. And kids like to hear that they're special. I mean, that's... Now, we'll see if she kind of does some digging on her laptop to see what witness actually means, and then it might get a little different. Oh, yeah. This is only the first conversation. Yeah. But for the first step, it wasn't too bad, I didn't think. (laughs) No, I think that she handled it pretty well initially, and I was a little surprised that Molly didn't have more questions initially. Right. But maybe she wants to save them for Mr. Crane. That's a new title for him. Yes, it is. And it's it's weird to hear him being called that. I know. At least it's not Captain Brownbeard. Yeah. Which I would really like to hear Jake call him that again. <laughs> now, of course, Diana also gets to play Save the Day as well, because after Jenny takes out the spells, Crane throws the knife, and Ansel's got a vial of Greek fire in his hands, and When he gets hit with the knife, it goes flying up in the air, and Diana is able to do her running, leaping catch of the vial before it hits the ground. Yeah, it was kind of like a a soccer goalie. The way when she (laughs) kind of dove in there, I thought, that's a soccer goalie trying to save the opposing team from scoring. That's what that was. Or an outfielder catching a bloop or something, you know, just yeah, Yeah. very uh, sportsy looking, that's for sure. And after what Ansel had done to her, it was a little surprising that she could pull that off because it kind of sounded like he was crushing her ribs. Yeah, but he was doing the same thing to Dreyfus, and Dreyfus was okay, too. Right. So, but yeah, I'm surprised. Maybe maybe the fact that Ansel was trying to make it a two-for-one special kind of depleted his power. it, It was split. Yeah, but it was even more interesting that Molly calls Diana out on that because Diana called it a a workout injury and she 
busted her on it. As she said, Mom, you can tell me the truth. Yeah. I think Molly is going to be pushing for the truth here more and more in the next few episodes. And we will see if Diana is able to make herself tell her the truth of what is actually going on or not. Well, I'm I'm kind of thinking that perhaps this will be the entrance of a relationship between Crane and Molly. It very well may be. And I'm still waiting for them to be foodies anyway. Yeah. Diana yeah. burns the quesadilla, so Molly's got to be cooking. You got to love her. These are horrible. Yeah. <laughs> um, I like them crunchy. Uh, they're burnt. <laughs> yeah. There's a difference between crunchy and burnt, Mom. Big time. <laughs> All right. How about our uh, dynamic duo there, Barb? Oh, Alex and Jake. Okay. What, what I really thought was so amazing is that here, Jake and Alex have have a complete storyboard on Dreyfus when everyone, when all of Team Witnesses is, is in the vault. Yes. It was amazing. I'm like, this is like what the um, the detectives do when they're trying to figure out what's going on in a major crime. And they have yes. it all laid out and they've got everything there. And I'm like, I'm so impressed with these two. They are <laughs> so smart. Jake has all the information on Dreyfus. He was a millionaire at this age and he did this and yada, yada. And then Alex is saying, okay, and here are all the links between all these supernatural encounters we've had and Dreyfus and Here's how he's been involved all, all along. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, these kids are brilliant. And, of course, then Crane is like, hey, this is great. Let's go take a look here at, at some of the artifact stuff. And Crane throws out a compliment about being an artifacts expert. And Jake is just like just beaming, thinking that this is about him. And Jenny says, oh, no, he's talking about me. <laughs> Put down. But it didn't bother him in the least. Oh, oh, no. yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> yeah, if you want to make points with Jenny, you better say, yeah, yo, you're, he's absolutely right. You are the expert. And what was just terribly amusing was Jake and Alex having that little conversation when she's like, dude, hamsters learn faster than you. <laughs> but he has this incredible enthusiasm. He has confidence. He doesn't care. He's got this major league crush on her. But again, hey, look, it's only, it hasn't been very long. Jenny still has Joe in her heart. Yeah. Jake and, and Jenny. That he doesn't know. He doesn't sure. know. But it doesn't matter. You know, I started to ship him last night. I was making up a name for him because you know how I like to make up my little combo yes. names, right? <laughs> and I was quickly like corrected by the fandom. No, we don't want to go there. And I'm like, you know what? You're right. I just do it because I like to make up names to, and put them together because it make them sound funny. But you're right. I am not shipping Jake and Jenny. I like this relationship where she kind of like, no, stop it. And he doesn't care. He's completely oblivious. And yet he's so brilliant. And But he just, yeah. he doesn't care. Yeah, he's totally confident in his geekiness. But the social skills are so lacking. <laughs> and he's such, But he's such a happy person. He's so sweet. He's just, yeah. he is. He's a puppy dog. He's adorable. He's lovable. He's fun. And he's smart. What a great character ad for this show. Yes. And hopefully, if he has to deal with a monster, it won't change him too much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'll just ship him with me and I'll call him Bake. Yeah. <laughs> that won't work. Never mind. All right. So anyway. Jarb. Yeah. <laughs> Jarb. Oh, I don't like Jarb. That sounds mean. I like Bake. Yeah. Besides, it reminds me of food. But anyway, so it was great how Alex said, yeah, I'll put in a good word for you, but it's going to cost you lunch for the rest of the month and your parking, parking pass. <laughs> yeah, I'll 
cut a deal with you. It'll be it'll be all good for me. Then really had no intentions of doing it, <laughs> going through with it. <laughs> no, not at all. But it was also good for Jake, Jenny, and Alex because here they were the people in the vault trying to solve how do we get Diana and Crane safely out of Dreyfus in- Industries and away from Ansel. And they watch him. I mean, they can see here he's killing the people. And Jake identified the marks on Ansel's arms as the seagulls, which were the demonic uh, symbols that were casting different killing spells. So, I mean, he knows his stuff. He understands the supernatural. And we always said that he, at least at the beginning, that he seemed sort of an X-Files, right, type of a guy. And he clearly understands this stuff, but he's never seen a practical application. So I do think he's going to be a very strong team member. Right. He also figured out how to sever the spell with the Nam Shab incantation. So Jenny said she was going to go while Alex and Jake monitor the situation. He wanted to go as a backup, but she just said, hey, I'm going to feel better if you guys are, are here, making sure that, you know, watching and making sure we're doing everything right. Right. And then again, how the three of them work together, though, as a team to determine the ley lines, because each one of them brought something to that discussion. Right. So a very smart problem-solving team. Yes, and that's very nice to have, is them back in the vault figuring out everything as Diana and Crane are in the field. Yeah, and if you stop and think about it, I mean, that's one of the things we really enjoyed when we had Abby and Jenny and Joe and Crane together in the archives. Right. Is how they each fed off of each other to solve problems. Each of them brought a piece of the puzzle and helped to take down whatever that monster of the week was. Right. And that's what we have to have. We've got to have this teamwork. So I enjoy seeing that. I still miss my old team, but I like watching them do it. And I like watching Jake and Alex learn from Jenny. Yes. Because both of them are intelligent. They just don't have the experience. And so they're getting some of that from Jenny and they will prove their worth before the end of the season, I'm sure. Yeah, but they're going to have a learning curve. Yep. Monsters, here we come. Well, let's talk about the bad guys, Steve. All right. Well, it opens with Job arriving at a revival in Texas, the ever-living rock, which seems to be healing people if they give money. Well, that's just your normal con job, and it ends up being another curved talisman piece. So it looks like the um, disc that they got out of Lincoln's head has got to be encased in a curved piece. And this apparently is the second of those pieces. Yeah, that threw me for a loop at first because I'm like, wait a minute. Isn't that the piece that was back in right <laughs> in the in the cave area in Dreyfus's mm-hmm. building? And, and then it, it dawned on me and I'm like, oh, this is another <laughs> one. We're going to have a circle going around this stone. I thought, oh, okay, yes. all right. Yep. And, of course, Job takes out the preacher. You want to call him that, more like con man. Fake preacher. Yeah. <laughs> con man. Yeah, that's better. Charlatan, my favorite. Charlatan, He's yes. A charlatan. In Texas, no less. Imagine that. And he calls Malcolm to say he's got the third talisman, and then, out of nowhere, he gets clobbered by a glowing club. And you go, whoa. How can this thing be just as big and bad as uh, Job is? And because he basically takes Job down with almost no trouble at all. And you're going, holy mackerel. 
Yeah, because Job is evil. But then what I really liked was the satanic echoey voice oh, that he yes. had too. Which and I'm like, wow, we've got devil fighting devil. This is going to be fun. But it didn't turn out that way because Job never got up. No, he didn't, and that really surprised me. Yes, but as we later find out that Ansel apparently was put in, I don't want to call it purgatory, because it's not the purgatory that we saw in season one, I don't believe. He called it hell. Yeah, he did. Because he said, I learned so much from you and your friends in hell. Time to put those lessons to use. Yes, and so apparently there are definitely a whole lot of demons down there because he had a whole lot of sigils all over the place. All over his body. That just looked painful. Yeah, especially as he uses one, it kind of disappears. But but I really want to know is this, apparently he had it out for Job too because when when Job comes to Dreyfus, and says, I've got a deal for you. You can either sign your soul over and have what you want, all your stuff, or you can be back out on a deserted road where you wrecked your car and all your equipment burnt up. Dreyfus makes the deal, signs the paperwork. So apparently Job was the one who put Ansel there, but didn't kill him. He just sent his soul to hell, apparently. Yeah, so that that would make it a bit strange, wouldn't it? Yeah. And I, yeah, and that's a good point because he said he was going to take care of him, but he he sent him down to hell without killing him. Yeah, that's you're right. That is a good point. I'm not sure how he did that, huh? And is it possible because we didn't see Job the rest of the episode? Did Ansel return the favor and send Job there? Now, That's of course, if he is actually the devil's messenger, then, yeah, he should be able to get back out because the devil will say, get your butt back up there. But interesting to see if that plays out and how that plays out. Good thought. Because Dreyfus was extremely jealous of Ansel because Ansel was the, the showman of the two and everybody loved him. Dreyfus was the brains behind it. And nobody seemed to care. So he got insanely jealous that Ansel was going to get all the credit for all his work. And that's what drove him to this point. Wah, wah, wah. Yes. So we go, all right, if you guys tried to make us think that Dreyfus was the big bad, no, 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 no. And this episode convinced me more than anything that, yeah, what Dreyfus is doing, he thinks he's doing it for this reason. And I think Job and whoever his boss is has got other plans. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit in theory, shall yes. we? Yeah. Yes. Didn't, so. didn't you like the red ink? Oh, absolutely. That was in the pen? <laughs> <And> yes. <laughs> Signing in your own blood. I know. And the other thing I'm going to say is that reminded me a little bit, you know, Job said he was a messenger, right? Mm-hmm. And that kind of reminded me of what Henry Parrish did with Frank Irving. Right. Having him sign his life away, to, what to, I guess, basically protect his family so that he could live. Mm-hmm. And so here, Job was having Dreyfus sign his soul away, kind of the same kind of thing, so that he could have what he wanted. Right. Which was really power, attention, wealth. Yep, very much so. And of course, Ansel does not give up easily. Every time Dreyfus and Crane and Diana get away, he 
doggedly pursues them until they finally meet up in the basement, I guess it was, because that's where all of um, Dreyfus's goodies was. And of course, we have the ending that we've already discussed where Jenny does her chant, Crane throws the knife, and Diana catches the Greek fire. And at least Ansel should be able to rest in peace now. Yeah, and Dreyfus escaped. Poof, he was yes. gone. He just snuck with right out of everything. there. Yeah, with everything, no less. Yes. So, and I have a feeling he's going to be Miss MIA for a couple of episodes, let's say. I don't know. I guess we'll see. Yeah. Or we may actually see Job return and end up in Sleepy Hollow with our team witness. Yeah. But I doubt we'll see Dreyfus. Now, of course, once again, the Greek fire was a callback to last season. Uh, we did see it in the Bones crossover with General Howl and the zombies and Pandora and Oh Whiny One. We went kind of Harry Potter in this episode, I thought. Yeah, there was quite a few uh, tweets about that as well. <laughs> yeah, I was responsible for a few of those. Yeah. Yeah, we had Ansel's, you know, magic skin burns, and it reminded me of like Voldemort's mark on his followers' arms, although that was a snake. It's not something right. that looked kind of like an anchor or some other little strange thing. And, of course, the Philosopher's Stone. Now, a lot of folks in the U.S., they read the books, and the first book was Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Well, when that was released in 1998, sorry, guys, it was actually released in 1997 in the U.K. first, and it was Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Right. Yeah, because they changed the title in the U.S. because <laughs> they were afraid that Folks in the U.S. wouldn't know what a philosopher was. <laughs> and then it also didn't sound as exciting as sorcerer. Right. So, so yeah, as soon as I saw Philosopher's Stone, I'm like, oh, being a Potterhead, I'm like, oh, ho, 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 look at this. Hey. Another shout out to their uh, fantastic U.K. Uh, following. Yep. To the Brits and everyone else. So anyway, somebody, I, th I think I saw a tweet out there, somebody teasing that next week we're going to find out what house Crane is going to be in. <laughs> and I'm guessing Gryffindor. And of course, our guest cast in this episode was Kamar De La Reyes as Job and Bjorn Dupe as Ansel. Shall we get into some theories? Yeah, let's do that. Dreyfus doesn't seem to be, to me now, to be too evil anymore. And, no. and, and I'm like, wait a minute, he's supposed to be the big bad this season. And yet, in this episode, all of a sudden, he was a narcissist. He was a whiny coward. And I'm like, oh, please do not bring a whiny one back. Right. And he was kind of annoying. Like, it's, this is all about me. This is all about mm -hmm. me. And keep him, keep him from dying and losing his soul. And I thought, okay, is he, is he lying, potentially? And then I thought, well, no, he's probably not. But if he's going to stay whiny like this... For the rest of the time he's on here, it's going to get very old and very annoying very quickly. Right. But like I said, I really think that this is Job and whoever he's reporting to is letting this happen, but will be turning the tables on him once all the pieces are collected. <laughs> yeah, I agree, because there is no way. Okay, so we know that Job is a messenger or a representative from the devil, right? So he is not going to be helping Dreyfus collect pieces of the Philosopher's Stone to allow Dreyfus to cheat death and get out of his no. contract. There's no, no way that's going to happen. No. So that means that Job must need the pieces for his master, right? For the devil. Right. 
And so then I began to think, okay, then why can't Job just go get everything himself? Why does he need Dreyfus for this? And he really hasn't. He's been doing most of the work, not Dreyfus. Exactly. I mean, Dreyfus has got the money that allows them to buy property and dig for stuff and all that. But since it started, it was almost all, everything's been, Job has been doing all the the real collecting of it, not Dreyfus. Yeah. So, and, but the thing is then too, then why isn't Dreyfus, if he was the smart guy, if he was the brains behind Dreyfus Industries, if he was the smart one and, you know, smarter than Ansel, then why hasn't he figured out that Job should know about the Philosopher's Stone and, and Job wouldn't let him do it? I mean, I don't understand that. We're missing something here. Right. And I think it's just the way Job has played Dreyfus. And we, we saw that a couple episodes when Dreyfus made the decision to give Crane the, um, the thing for J Street. And Job didn't think that was a very good idea. But he let him do it. Yeah, he went ahead and let him do it, but he wasn't too happy with it. Now, of course, apparently the J Street wasn't all that important for their plan, except for possibly getting headless inside. So they have one of the horsemen. Yes. So could the Philosopher's Stone also be used to collect the other horsemen? Maybe, but theoretically, it's supposed to be allow that eternal life. So would it bring back Moloch? Would it bring back Henry Parrish as one of the four horsemen? I, I don't know. Right. But the thing that bothers me is that Dreyfus, if he's so smart, he should have figured out that if Job knows that the Philosopher's Stone is used for eternal life and that Dreyfus could cheat death that way, then Dreyfus and, should know that Job wouldn't let him do it. Right. So Dreyfus is... Not only whiny, he's incompetent as well. Well, I don't... For someone <laughs> so book smart, he doesn't seem to be very street smart. I'm not sure. Right. So anyway, <laughs> I'm sure we'll learn more. It'll make sense as it goes on. Yeah, right now, uh, not feeling Dreyfus, that's for sure. No, I don't like him very much anymore. Well, I didn't like him before, but he doesn't seem to be a, a big and bad enough evil yet. So No. And he doesn't yet. seem like he's going to become one. Right. At least Owani one had powers that you had to respect. Exactly. Where Dreyfus right now has nothing but money. And yeah, there's nothing to respect there. <laughs> no, it's all about me. Well, we're off to Sleepy Hollow next week, aren't we? Yes, we are. Going home. Yeah, so it seems like, what, there are maybe four main pieces to the stone? What, the round stone itself and the three oh. pieces that surround it? Right. So they've got one more roundy piece to get. But it seems a bit premature to find the final piece if next week is episode 6 of 13. Right, which also tends to make me think that Dreyfus isn't the big bad. <laughs> We're yeah. getting to this way too quickly. Yeah, we really are. And now... The character of Job has always been listed as a as a guest star and not as a regular star. Right. So I, I'm not sure how this is going to play out. So I guess we'll watch and see. But I think that our team next week is, I think they're going to get the piece in Sleepy Hollow. I don't think the bad guys are going to get it. I think our team is going to get it. And the reason nice I think they're there. Yeah. The reason I think they're going to get it is because A, they need to get a win. And B, then I think the bad guys can come after them. And I think that that could get Jake into trouble, like we talked about last week, where he has to get rescued. Right. So that's kind of my theory. That's my prophecy right now, is that our team is going to get this. They're going to put it in the vault, and the bad guys are going to come 
after that piece, and that's when Jake will be in danger, and he'll get saved. Right. And that would definitely shift the focus more towards the crew instead of whiny Dreyfus. <laughs> Agree. And I think it's going to be fun to, to see Sleepy Hollow. I've really liked the callbacks that we've had. But I think after this, from a nostalgia standpoint, after we go to Sleepy Hollow, we really need to be focusing on our new characters and move forward. Right. And that's just my opinion. I tend to agree with you that I think it is about time to move forward. Yeah. Any other prophecies or theories that you have, Steve? No. I want to see how next week turns out, and then I might be able to give us, it might give me a better idea of exactly where we're heading here. Because I really think Job is playing Dreyfus, and either Job is or his whoever he's reporting to is the big bad that we're going to have to deal with before the season's over with. Yeah, and we know that we're supposed to see more Henry Parrish. Right. And so I think after next week, that may be the time. And that's why I'm wondering if perhaps they'll use the stone to bring back some of that evil for the four horsemen. Right. All right, Steve. So what kind of ickyisms or witnessisms, whatever we're going to call them now, um, did we have this week? Because I think there were a couple very funny ones. Oh, yeah. We've got Crane's um, pep talk to the girls' soccer team. The third century Celtics were the most monstrous and bloodthirsty warriors in all of Britain. Savage to their barbarian hearts, they laid waste to all who challenged them. Even one Danish prince foolish enough to cross Hadrian's Wall. He was defeated, of course, and decapitated. The Celtic chieftains allowed their men to kick lustily, kick his head around for enjoyment. And from these gruesome origins grew the sporting endeavor you modern-day warriors refer to as soccer. Yeah, yeah it was so <laughs> funny. <laughs> and then he ends it with, to a swift victory, Team Bumblebee. Yeah, Team Bumblebee. <laughs> that is so threatening. Not. When <laughs> Diana comes back, quite the pep talk. Ever thought about coaching you soccer? Ichabod replies, one deadly situation at a time, please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not uh, excited to uh, be dealing with the young ones. Now, of course, probably the best line of the whole episode was Alex to Jake regarding Jenny. Dude, hamsters learn faster than you. Yeah. <laughs> that was so funny. And all of a sudden, I had a visual of Jake on a little hamster wheel going brr. Yeah. <laughs> Chasing this picture of Jenny. Oh. And Ichabod goes, Master Wells, you say you saw his man procuring an item from the Smithsonian? Jay goes, no, procuring is the nicest way of saying he incinerated a security guard while demonically trashing his storage room. Yeah, I like that, too. The other thing I really liked was that, that was that Crane calls Jake Master Wells. Yes, Master Wells. Master Wells, right? Like like he's a little kid, right? Mm-hmm. In a way, or but yes. that's, maybe that's just his term of res- of respect. But still, I thought that was just delightful. Yes. All right, let's move on to our history lesson, Barb. Okay, Steve. Well, this week we're going to go a little sciency, a little a little Britain sciency this week. So we have mm-hmm. the philosopher's stone. Now, the philosopher's stone or stone of the philosophers is a legendary alchemical substance capable of turning base metals such as mercury into gold or silver. It is also able to extend one's life and called the elixir of life, useful for regeneration and for achieving immortality. 
For many centuries, it was the most sought-after goal in alchemy. The philosopher's stone was the central symbol of the mystical terminology of alchemy, symbolizing perfection at its finest, enlightenment, and heavenly bliss. Efforts to discover the philosopher's stone were known as the magnum opus or great work. Mention of the philosopher's stone in writing can be found as far back as, and I'm going to butcher this name, Chiriok Meta by Zosimos of Panopolis, which was about 300 AD. Alchemical writers assign a longer history. Elias Asmol and the anonymous author of Gloria Mundi in 1620 claim that its history goes back to Adam, who acquired the knowledge of the stone directly from God. This knowledge was said to be passed down through biblical patriarchs, giving them their longevity. The legend of the stone was also compared to the biblical history of the Temple of Solomon and the rejected cornerstone described in Psalm 118. Now, Sir Isaac Newton of England, who lived from about 1642 to 1726, had an interest in the philosopher's stone. One of his 17th century alchemy manuscripts reveals his recipe for philosophic mercury, thought to be an ingredient used in concocting the magical stone. This manuscript was purchased at auction by the Chemical Heritage Foundation on February the 16th, 2016, so just about a year ago. Philosophic mercury was just one of the steps of the alchemical process and was the most sought-after substance in alchemy, also called chemistry, and that's with a Y instead of an E, in 17th century England. Now, Newton's recipe for philosophic mercury was originally written by an American chemist named George Starkey per James Vocal, the curator for rare books at the Chemical Heritage Foundation. Starkey studied at Harvard University and moved to England in 1650 to work with eminent chemists of the time. He ended up working with Robert Boyle, one of Newton's contemporaries. But Starkey published under the pseudonym Arrhenius Philateles, allowing him to control other chemists' access to his experiments, Vocal said. This manuscript links Newton's alchemical practice to the American figure George Starkey. He's probably America's first renowned published scientist. Although historians can't tell if Newton carried out Starkey's alchemy experiment himself, Volkel said that it was very likely that he did. In fact, Newton made notes and corrected a mistake in Starkey's original text. On the back of the manuscript, he also wrote down one of his own experiments for distilling lead ore. So it looks like indeed the Philosopher's Stone was something that many individuals, including the very prominent scientist, Sir Isaac Newton, kind of fiddled around with. Yes, indeed. Yeah, so you can read more about this. I've got two articles out there. We'll put the links in the blog post. One is to the Wikipedia article, The Philosopher's Stone, and the other is the link to livescience.com, the article entitled Isaac Newton's Recipe for Magical Philosopher's Stone Rediscovered. Another fantastic history lesson there, Barb. Lots of fun there, Steve. Yeah, I'm sure uh, not many people in the U.S. knew about that and probably made our Brit fans extremely happy. <laughs> and that's what we we're, we aim to please everyone. All right, so speaking of pleasing folks, Steve, I think we got a whole lot of feedback that the folks that listen to this podcast would love to hear. All right, yes, we do. Our bestie Justina wrote in to us. Hi, Barb and Steve. This was not my favorite episode, but here's what I enjoyed. I loved Ichabod pep talk to the soccer team. I loved Diana explaining to Molly that she is a witness. 
I love that Jenny has accepted help from the new team and then got to cast the spells to save the day. I am still not very invested in the Dreyfus character, so episodes that focus on him don't hold my interest as well. 8 out of 10 soccer pep talks. Especially since he became whiny. Yeah, (laughs) and cowardly. And very annoying. And we got some feedback through our Golden Spiral Media feedback page from Julie. You want to take that one, Barb? Sure. She said, another great episode this week. I give it eight adorable puppy dog Jakes. They certainly are moving the plot rather fast so far this season. I thought they'd hold back on having Diana tell Molly about her being at witness for at least one more episode. I just hope it doesn't all fizzle out in the end if they end up with the current speed. Glad to see they finally told us what those artifact pieces were supposed to be. Yeah, me too. In my honest opinion, I don't believe what Malcolm had was the Philosopher's Stone at all. Now, this is interesting. According to alchemical lore, the stone was said to be either white or red and glass-like. Those pieces looked rather gray to me and definitely not made of glass. Very nice, Julie. I didn't read that part. Also, why would Job... See, here we go. She's saying the same thing that I am. Also, why would Job let him collect and assemble the Philosopher's Stone if it would let him renege on his contract? We all say this. We all believe the same thing. This tablet has to be something else entirely, maybe a key to hell or something. And if uh, in history they think that the Philosopher's Stone was, you know, passed down from God or was something like this, then heaven, hell, you know, there's, okay, why would the devil want it? So right. anyway, we will see. But yeah, very good points, Julie. I agree with a lot of what you're saying. Absolutely do. And our Twitter question of the week was, will the stone work the way Dreyfus believes or will it backfire? And Annette said, backfire. And then she said, no, I think that Job will allow him to find it and then kill him and take his soul. At this point, if Job kills Dreyfus, I'm not going to be crushed. No, No. (laughs) I don't think anybody will miss him. No. And then Deb said, the markings in the stone reminded me of the blood trails when Crane and Headless fall. So I hadn't really looked at the stone. I didn't do a freeze frame on that. So I think that's something I'm going to have to do uh, this week is kind of go back and take a look at that. But Deb has some keen eyes. So yes, she's. Uh, I I think she may be right there. It it may very well look like the symbol that the blood between Crane and um, Abraham made. Yeah, interesting. Very, very good observation, Deb. Yep. Uh, We want to welcome all our new followers on Twitter as well as Facebook. And thanks for all the retweets and interaction. And there was a whole lot of Twitter conversation last night. And we want to thank everybody that was interacting with us. And this week's shout outs go to Sleepy Hollow Riders, Sleepy Hollow Attic, Debbie Lamb, Joyce Williams, Danny, Vera Hines, Pam Woods, Kat. The Real Toddino, Andrea Wallenberger, Mandy Megan Actress, Michelle McKeever, Peace, Love, and Hope, Peace Will Win, Diana L., Charang T. Patel, Desiree, Deb, Cindy Metcalf, Mary Powers, Annette Nugget, Linda Trebeck, Charmaine in Lofton, Tom Meissen Fans, Carolyn Addy, Jonas Stalinsky, Pamela Edwards, Betty, Patricia Reynolds, Anthony B. Minnelli, Sourcy, Sandy McGowans, Aa Anak, Think, Tony Tulos, WTS fan, Shitty Nonsense, nice Twitter handle there, Diana L., Angela Copley, Helga Mania, The Travel Foodie, Polly T., Kiera, Susan, Luca Rabizzo, Julie, Tiffany T., and Justina. 
How can they get a hold of us, Barb? Okay, there are a couple ways they can do that, Steve. Our voicemail number is 304-837-2278, or you can go to goldenspiralmedia.com slash feedback, where you can use the speak pipe widget on the side of the page to record audio, or you can type out your feedback on the form, and you can also attach an audio feedback. Now, our deadline is Saturdays at 7 p.m. Eastern time, which is when we record. And you can find us also on Facebook, Witness Prophecies is our page. And on Twitter, we are at Witness Prof GSM. Steve is at Salier Steve, and I am at Tangier 14. All right. We've come to that time in the podcast where we discuss future episodes in our visions of the future. So if you don't want to be spoiled, run, run as if Ansel is getting ready to throw a tube of Greek fire at you. All right. Episode six, Homecoming. When the team realizes that the talisman which Dreyfus seeks might be hidden in the most obvious of places, they race against the clock to find it before the evil forces are aligned. Then, with heightened emotions and bittersweet memories, Jenny and Crane revisit important parts of their past as they return to Sleepy Hollow. Yeah, that's the part I'm real curious and anxious to see is revisiting the important parts of their past. Yeah, I think they'll go to the archive. I'm wondering if they'll visit Abby's grave. And I'm wondering if we're going to get to see Daddy Mills. Right. And if you notice down here, we're going to get to see Benjamin Banneker. Yes, Banneker and Job returns in the episode. Yeah, he's there. He's alive. He's alive. Okay, episode seven, which is going to air on Friday, February the 17th is Loco Parentis. So Molly's father is returning. Just before Molly's 11th birthday, her father returns from duty. As Diana begins to wonder if her ex might be ready to be a part of his daughter's life full time, the team has a shocking realization. (laughs) Yeah, I see the uh, connection coming, don't you? (laughs) That's what I'm thinking too, is there's going to be some big surprise and This is where her witness blood, her tie-in to the Mills sisters is going to come in. Yep. I definitely see that coming here. Yeah. Episode eight, Sick Burn. When internet sensation Logan McDonald comes to town, a supernatural infection hits via a viral video. Meanwhile, Molly has a frightening vision that could predict a bleak future. Can the team cure the curse before it takes over the town? Hmm. And guess who that internet sensation happens to be? Someone that some people I think are going to recognize, Mr. Robbie K. Absolutely. Robbie K. is going to be here. Peter Pan on Once Upon a Time. Indeed he is, or was. Did he get, he finally got vamoosed. I think he got killed off. But well, anything, but people come back to life all the time. His son went, disappeared and his son made it back. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, it will be nice to see Robbie Kay again and see if he's maybe not all that he's supposed to be. Yeah, we'll you wonder if, he if he's a the, bad he guy. Bad, real good. Yeah, he does. <laughs> okay, and then the episode after that, we do not have a date for this one yet, but episode nine is going to be Child's Play. And I think you heard something about this one, Steve. Right. This is an episode where the a child will draw pictures of monsters that then come to life. Ooh. Yeah. Might see Molly get involved in this one, maybe, as an interface to the child. We could. 
Episode 10 is entitled Insatiable. Episode 11, The Way of the Gun. Episode 12 is tomorrow. And little birdie told me that this is a look at the near future if Dreyfus takes control and should have the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It's a really creepy looking setup. So, ooh, should be a great episode. Yeah, but I don't see Dreyfus taking control of anything. <laughs> I'm sorry. He's too whiny. I agree. Well, yeah. Now, maybe it's if Job takes control or Job's boss takes control, but. Or maybe the Philosopher's just, Stone will have a different impact on him and turn him into a truly a bad guy. Maybe. I maybe that's how he gives up his soul is whoever Job's boss is takes his body. Well, I guess we'll find out. Yeah. And then the final episode of the season, number 13, will be entitled Freedom. And we haven't given a shout out lately for the great book, Sleepy Hollow, Creating Heroes, Demons, and Monsters, that was released about a year and a quarter ago, about 15 right. months ago, that showed all the great season one and season two stories and, and monsters. And it was kind of an official making of book by uh, Tara Bennett and Paul Terry. So if you haven't gotten yours, get it. It is worth the money. Absolutely great stuff in the book. Please review us and rate us on iTunes with good ratings and reviews. It helps other fans of the show find us as there are other Sleepy Hollow podcasts out there. To subscribe in iTunes to any GSM podcast, go to goldenspiralmedia.com slash iTunes. Tell your friends, and we do really hope you're enjoying our podcast. This is Steve, and yes, I imagine your own personal demon can come in quite handy. And this is Barb signing out. And in the war between good and evil... The witnesses will always be drawn to the side of conflict in order to witness it. What we do at that conflict is entirely up to us. See you next week, sleepyheads.